Hello world. Hey. Hi. 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 Hello. Hello. Hi. It's like I forgot not to say hello. <laughs> Hi everyone and welcome to this week's episode of Life with Kaka. I'm your host and fellow producer Carolina Gropa. Thanks for being here. There's a special kind of person who greets you when meeting you for the first time with a very warm, receptive hug. And that was very much my experience of this week's guest, the Academy Award-nominated producer Chelsea Winstonley. Her career actually began as a writer-director almost 20 years ago. Producing accidentally became a means to an end so she could direct. And then she found out she was quite good at it. And yes, Google results will also reveal that she is the wife of Taika Waititi, the writer-director-actor who just took home the Best Adapted Screenplay Academy Award for Jojo Rabbit, which Chelsea produced. So Chelsea and Taika, they're both of Maori descent, and they met in 2010 when she interviewed him for a documentary profiling Maori artists. By the time their paths crossed, Chelsea had lived through more life stuff than most of us can imagine. See, at 20 years old, she found herself pregnant, abandoned by her partner, living on government aid, and surviving a car accident that left her unable to walk, all before graduating college. Eventually, Chelsea learned to walk again, and now, dare I say it, she is soaring. And while the team did not take home the Best Picture Oscar, 2020 is Chelsea's year. With the launch of her production company, aptly named This Too Shall Pass, she's going to focus on indigenous stories, and it's going to put her back in the director-writer seat. I can't wait to see what she does next. So, in this week's chat, we discuss putting yourself first, self-care, and the importance of letting creative ideas run their course. She reminds us that it all comes and goes, so try not to hold on to anything. So is that okay just there? I'll just Yeah, like, you're great. You're great. Is my um what about my jacket and stuff? Is it like It'll noisy? make noise, but I want you to be comfortable. Just it is what it is. What the the point of the show is about talking about the unglamorous realities and mm. the just the messy parts of life as it pertains to producing, hence the name of the show, Life with Kaka. It's kind of like a tongue in cheek, <laughs> you know, play on my nickname and, and talking. Oh, is that your nickname? Yeah. Great. Yeah. Because I'm actually from Brazil and oh. and part of the reason when I was doing my homework on you because obviously, you know, I, I saw Jojo Rabbit and I was like blown away by it. And then I looked you up, learned all about some sort of your history and where you're from and being from a, a tribe descendant and all of this incredible stuff. And as an immigrant myself, as a person who was not originated in this country, I was like, well, it just opened up the conversation even broader to talk to you and made me even more fascinated. Oh, cool. Yeah. So I have a lot of questions. Oh, that's that, nice. I'm, I'm excited to talk to you about that stuff too yeah. because- I think, you know, um, with storytelling in general, it comes from origin, no matter what you're going to talk about. Yeah. And you're kind of informed by who you are, what you are, where you're from. And it's wonderful if you can kind of bring those things into storytelling. But we've been so dominated, haven't we, in this kind of white yeah. male, yeah. old man The, the lens of colonialism, capitalism, good times. <laughs> <laughs> All the isms. All the isms. Get out of here, isms. Now it's time for some feminism. <laughs> you know, at its finest. Let's, let's, we'll go with the beginning of words now, just the fam. The fam, Forget yeah. the isms. I know, it's too much work <laughs> to say the whole word. But, um, but no, I think it's interesting. You know, it's funny, when I set out to do this show, I was like, I want to talk about identity because I'm obsessed with that topic. And as a person who 
is sort of like a hybrid. You know, I was born in Brazil, but moved here when I was nine. And even as far as my Brazilian ancestry goes, my family's Italian. So we were fairly new generational in Brazil. So I feel like there's been this sort of uprooting time and time again. And now that I'm in America, you know, I'm perceived to be American because I don't have an accent and I don't look stereotypically like I'm from Brazil. Um, so it's been interesting to find my own identity within the confines of all of that. Mm-hmm. And often as a storyteller, I'm like, well, what is my voice? Like, what do I have to say? Because oh. I often feel like a fish out of water. Like I gravitate towards, you know, I think it's why I, I identified so much with the central character in Jojo Rabbit, even though I'm not, you know, a German Nazi boy. I, I just felt that he was struggling with his own identity. Mm-hmm. And that really was one of the things that really like pulled me in and, you know, in the beginning of the film, I, I struggled to understand where it was going. And I was like, all right. Right, totally was, and things like that. Yeah, yeah, I was just like, okay, we're at like this Hitler training camp and, you know, we're all learning how to be Nazis. But mm. it's almost like um, a piece of music you're listening to for the first time and you're like, this is the foreign sound. But then once you understand what the artist is intending, you're like, oh, shit, like this mm. is brilliant, you know, mm. and so... I think Taika does that with his films anyway. He sets up quite quickly the world. Yeah. Like he did that with Boy. I'm mm. not sure if you've seen that film, but I um, know. he did that with Boy as well. He sets up the character's world really quickly. And like that, again, it's kind of a similar opening, actually. The character in Boy is presenting to his classroom um, about his kind of life and his interests. And you don't know that until, you know, a few months later that you realize, oh, he's talking to his class. But within that short, quick, time frame he's given you a like a amazing uh overview so you dive into this kid's world really quickly yeah so yeah he kind of did that he used this similar kind of technique mm-hmm. allowing your audience to quickly understand where they are in that yeah. given moment because i mean yeah what a story about a nazi kid like a eh? so you got to kind of got to quickly get into what's this all about and showing his fanaticism and his youthful gaze really quickly I think allows you to go, oh, okay, it's from that kid's perspective. Yes. Same with Boy. You are introduced to that character first. He's the first thing you hear, first thing you see. So you go, oh, okay, this is a story about a young Mm -hmm. boy searching for his father kind of thing or wishing he had a father figure. Yeah. So there's similar themes actually in that story and Jojo because – why else would you have an imaginary friend? Because you've got kind of no mates. Or you need, you need a father figure of some yes. sorts. You're lonely yes. or you're reaching out. So yeah, and I think the scene where we kind of meet him and, and the whole – I don't want to spoil anything for anyone who hasn't seen it, but the scene with the rabbit, I th- to me that was like – if that scene didn't exist, the movie would not have made sense mm. because it sets up that this boy is harmless. Right. At his core, he's too compassionate to mm. ever hurt anything. Mm. Mm. You know, you can't even face doing something to a rabbit to impress the very people that he wants desperately to be a part of that community. And and that scene just really set that up for me. Well, yeah, and yeah. I guess like, why would you do that? Why would you wring a rabbit's neck? Why would you cause harm onto anybody? Which yeah. is really the bigger theme too, isn't it, of war? Why would you want to intentionally cause harm onto anyone that's done nothing yeah. to you? Fear. Fear, yep. yep and so, being, you know, brainwashed, really, yeah. to believe that something, the unknown, fear the unknown, essentially. Yeah. And and what, and what when we go to war, or, you know, hopefully we don't ever go to war, but um, in situations of war, it's like the people or the soldiers, the people who are fighting, they're just pawns in this crazy game. And the people who are making the decisions, they're not in harm's way. 
they're putting all these other innocent people in harm's way for the good of what you know yeah i think that that's why 1917 has struck a chord with so many people it's obviously brilliant uh storytelling from a pragmatic production standpoint cinematography is out of control but it really is just a story of one man who's risking his whole life just to get a message to someone to stop a war and there's millions of lives that are lost in in that process and there's that great line it's like and what's it all for you know what are we really nobody really knows you lose sort of context but but I want to bring it back for a second. So Teka Waititi is your husband. And I'm curious, you guys have done two projects together now with you producing. So are there certain projects that he brings to you? Like what makes you as a producer, as a writer, director in your own right, you know, choose to work on certain things with him versus other projects? And how important was it to get the tone of the satire right? And I'm sure like your reaction when you read it, like just walk me through all of those three questions I asked at once. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Firstly, um, okay, projects I choose and not to choose to work on. Depends if he's impregnated me or not. <laughs> <laughs> I love that honest answer. Oh, thank you. Bless your heart. <laughs> you know, because it's one of the hardest things to try and balance. And a thing that really takes uh, working mothers literally out of the running to becoming America's next top producer, or whatever, yeah. you know, um, is because when you are pregnant and you have a baby, there is time. Your body is going through some changes that I'm sorry, guys, you just can't handle. You're literally uh, growing a human inside you. Literally. Like, yes. And so there are things that you can't, I mean, you have to try and give yourself some space. Um, and hey, I'm not saying that's for everyone, uh, but, you know, for me specifically, um, I was pregnant when we were kind of prepping shadows, what we do in mm. the shadows. Yeah. Uh, we had our baby here in uh, LA actually in Venice and doing kind of budgets and like doing all that, you know, while you got sitting there eating ice cream and whatnot <laughs> and just getting fatter and fatter. That's fine. But <laughs> I do that, but I don't have a baby. Inside <laughs> me, <so>. <laughs> Food baby. <laughs> it's like, you know, working from your PJs in bed on a laptop, like barely eating. That's the true producing. That, that is the best position to be in. Yep. It really is. Um, <laughs> and then we had Bubba and then I think I went, we, I went home with like a five week old baby because we got the money kind of quickly and then um, went home and it, that's kind of like the perfect time to have a baby on set because literally they can't do anything. They're not walking. They're just looking extremely gorgeous and you can just like <laughs> wheel them around to all the cool departments that yeah. want to go over your baby, you know, like often it was either makeup and hair yeah. or costume <laughs> because, you know, they're often filled with women who mm -hmm. want to like hold bubbers and, and we just have that natural thing, don't we, as women, we want to um, nurture and, and, and create a community. So that was the cool thing. I was able to um, have baby on set or in the front pack and then there would be times <laughs> when I'd be like, okay, recording and action and then <laughs> I mean, oh shit, sorry. I'll, I'll have to get out of the way, you know, move off set for a while. Yeah. Um, so really that's kind of what's dictated our working relationship. Mm. But I think we're at a point now, and for me personally, um, 
Uh, maybe I'm jumping ahead because you also asked me about the tone. I did. I asked you three questions at once because I'm too excited and I apologize. No problem. <laughs> so I'm not sure I might be missing one out, but I'll go to the tone thing. Well, it was, you know, how you choose the projects, oh, yeah. tone, and then your first impressions when he brought Jojo Rabbit to you. Right. Um, so tone, I think, is just throughout Tyker's work, no matter what, because mm. he's actually like a stand-up comedian and he's an, a visual artist and a fine artist. He's and an like, actor. Yeah. And an actor. Um like before he did his Oscar-nominated short, Two Cars, One Night, he was working on this TV show as a stripper. <laughs> <laughs> did he get, throw that in there. <laughs> did he get fully naked? Or was it Not just, fully. Just it was like, like, have you ever heard of like the Chippendales? Yeah. Or, right, so it was kind of like that, like a real like bad New Zealand version. Oh my gosh, wait, so this is this – You can find is, it can on find YouTube. It. Okay. I'm sure you can find oh, it. Oh my God. He's going to kill me. I love this. Thank you. This is a, <laughs> this is a Life of Cock exclusive. And he did actually say he had to like de-hair like he was super hairy and they had to wax, <laughs> wax him. He, he, he seems like a hairy man from – yeah, he's got a lot of hair going yeah. on. Up top. You know what that is? That's don't don't wash your hair, men out there, men and women. Maybe if you don't, don't want to get wash a your hair. don't like use a uh, product. He's got the most amazing, thick, naturally thick, gorgeous hair. Mm. I think it's from no life product. Hack. Okay, yeah. life, hack. life hacks. <laughs> um, but tone is through anything. So okay, so when he was in that stripper show, he was thinking, <laughs> "This is wrong." Like, okay, I'm sorry, but I'm acting in this as a stripper in the show there's got to be more to this and mm-hmm. so he it was during that point he actually wrote two cars one night but i think he wrote it initially as a play and then his good friend Ainsley gardner who he worked with a lot um picked it up and they decided to make that into a film but but even from that if you see that film that short film you can see his tone in that mm. you can see his perspective he's really good working with children um you can just see his humor come through yeah and I think that's it's just peppered throughout. I mean, he, look what he did with Thor Ragnarok. Yeah. I mean, I'm sorry, but that guy resurrected that dude's career. <laughs> he made Thor watchable. Yeah. Um, yeah. But he, but he does, and he's just he's very very clever like that. He's good at adding jokes. I mean, how he manages to do it all the time is beyond me because yeah. that's not that's not me that's not where I come from I'm not naturally a comedian yeah. or funny like that <laughs> I mean I can have a good laugh for sure but he's you know he's got that thing so um moving into the future though for me I think is going backwards so before I met him like I had a career before I met as Tyka. a writer director right yeah you and I docs yeah I did docs and um that's always kind of been my first love, but I think I've managed to now find a sweet balance or realize that actually I can include truth in a narrative form as well. It doesn't always have to be in the form of documentaries. Mm-hmm. I'll always love documentaries, absolutely. Um, but I now want to see and weave that through the narrative features I make. So I'm probably more on the slightly se- more, more serious note than, yeah. than he is. Yeah, because you just have a new production company called This Two Shall Pass, yes. which is a wonderful name. Thank you. And so are you stepping more into a, a writing, directing sort of I, – I did a lot of research on you and read a lot about how you really wanted to transition out of being a full-time mom and you wanted to re-sort of kindle your own artist inside you and the th- other parts of your life and your identity that give you joy. Mm. Um, and I, I 
wonder if that's something a lot of people know about you unless they've done a ton of research like I did. <laughs> you know? Well, thank you for doing that research. Yeah. It helps. I think often people just um, go, oh, right, yeah, you're Taika's wife or right. whatever, or you're married to Taika, or you guys were – like it's always him, his name is before mine Your in name. a sentence. Mm-hmm. And I think um, it's, it's really important for me to make sure that um, I – I, I put myself first, not in a selfish way, but like I mentioned before, I did have a career before I met him and I will always make films with without him anyway. Um, and I think I just have to, it's that thing about believing in yourself because mm. no one else is actually going to back you until you yeah. back yourself. And it's not like a um, what we kind of, ter- we would say in Maori language, like fuck a hee-hee. It's like <laughs> being all like, um, I'm so like full I'm of shit. shit, basically. Yeah, yeah, it's not that. It's just coming from a place and being comfortable with being authentic authentic to yourself. And I think sometimes we're made to feel like, oh, we shouldn't really talk about ourselves or, mm. or shouldn't put ourselves first. And naturally as women and, and as mothers, because we're all about community, we tend to not put ourselves first and we forget about that self-care and we forget about that self-love. And Because how good do we feel when we actually do something we really love doing and we get that self-satisfaction? I think that's what I'm about now. I'm in my reaching my mid 40s <laughs> <laughs> I've become a bit older wiser and all those yeah. things that you hear about where you're like oh whatever it actually is really true it's true well so how have you found that I mean so like if you were to look back on you in your life in your 20s and then your 30s now being halfway through this this decade you know were you always this self-aware and connected Mm-mm. to that and I, I mean I want to get get to some of the like what happened to you when you were 20, getting pregnant at 20 and then having your partner leave and then getting into a car accident and then having to learn how to walk again. Talk about, wow, like just overcoming all of that, you know, and, and pushing through. And, and I think people can look at you and just, you're right. Like if, if it's just the wife of, you're missing so much of the fabric of the narrative that is so important to who you are, mm. you know? And so just talk a little bit about all of that. Yeah. And I, I guess I do want to say there's nothing wrong with being the wife of someone because being a supportive partner to someone else yeah. is a beautiful relationship too. So I don't want to um, dismiss and be dismissive of anybody who is in that situation and mm-hmm. they're having a wonderful time in their life and they're very fulfilled. I don't ever want to kind of come across as that's a that's a not a good choice for yeah. a woman to make, you know? Like, And we all just have to be responsible for the choices we make. Um, I think for me personally, because I had a career before that I've always been quite independent, that all of a sudden kind of having these labels of just his wife or da-da-da, it was kind of frustrating. Yeah. Like, ah. I'm always probably going to have that if I don't step out from it. So I'm making a very conscious effort to step out from it. And it's not a fearful place to come out from either because I'm very grateful for the films we have made together and mm. look here we are with Jojo being Oscar nominated, BAFTA nominated, yes. the Globes, all that kind of stuff. Amazing. It's amazing and to be really honest with you it does open doors that perhaps weren't open to you before because people take you a little bit seriously which it, well they should anyway but you know yeah. those things unfortunately do matter or fortunately, because now I'm able to have conversations with people that maybe were a little bit harder to get to before. Right. And it's like, well, what are you going to do now that you have that access and that power, right? Yeah. You can use that for good and you can use to shed a light onto stories of women, indigenous women, which I know is really important to you and sort of your background. And that's a brilliant thing. Yeah. You know, that's, that's what it, at its best, that's what it serves. Yeah. And yeah. like coming to trying to figure out 
I guess in in your life, whatever in everyone's life, so you're trying to figure out what is my purpose mm. and that kind of thing. <laughs> and I think I'm just, I've just kind of. I think I know what that is now and but only because certain things have happened to me in my life to get me to that point and I really believe in the universe dishing you out lessons in life and you kind of you're only responsible to how you react to those lessons you're not Truth. responsible for what anyone else does or what anyone else says about you or, or anything like that because sometimes you know you can take it as and dive into that or, or I should say probably end at the bottom of the ocean and you're like, ah, oh, victimhood kind of thing. Like, ah, oh, everyone's against me, whatever. But you can rise above, if you can rise above and see those lessons that come at you in life, whether it be the end of a relationship or, you know, the heartbreaking things that happen to you in life. Mm. If you can just look at them and think, okay, this is a lesson. What I'm, What do I have to learn from this? Thank you for that lesson. How can I get up from this and move forward? Um one of the things for me, like the biggest lessons I think that have happened in life probably stemmed from childhood trauma mm. that I couldn't understand and I couldn't articulate at the time because I was too young to know what that was. And then as I've gotten older, understanding what that trauma meant and how it manifested probably a lot of anger within me because I didn't know how else to deal with it. And then looking at back in my life and looking at relationships that I've had, whether it be on a professional or personal level and understanding how I've navigated myself through those relationships. But I know that it's really, it all stems back from, you know, what you experience as a child and how you deal with um, that trauma. I think childhood trauma is a really huge thing for me that I really want to try and um, articulate in films going forward. But I wanted my own company because I was really interested in stories that have authentic cultural um, roots to them and maybe stories that haven't had the opportunity to be seen before or voices that haven't had the chance to be heard before. And I know that comes from being mentored by a wonderful woman who we kind of term as the indigenous grandmother of cinema. Her name was Merata Mita. Mm-hmm. And she was a mentor to me and to many, many others, and especially Māori back home in New Zealand. Um, she was fearless in standing up for the rights of Indigenous people, for women. And she had this beautiful sense of wanting to mentor us because she knew when she started, she had no one around her. There was only like maybe two or three other filmmakers, and they were men. But it was a very small community, you know, and so she was – battling it the whole time right up until she passed and so I always look at her and think about her and about her life whenever there's something happening for me and I'm like oh I don't know how to deal with that I just quietly sit say a prayer um, ask for some guidance and more often than not I don't know I love LA for this but there would be hawks that will fly around me or fly around where I live here in LA if I go for a walk and I just want to say a prayer And I just feel her and I feel my grandmother. And I think those are really important things if you can harness your kind of spirit guides or just people around you that are on on your team, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So then how – this is now. You have this perspective now. Mm. I'm Mm. assuming you didn't (laughs) always think this way. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, you know, talk a little bit about the shift of some of the events that have happened in your past and – getting to to where you are now you know one of the things i'm personally very interested in and focusing on is talking about 
the lulls, the, the, the times when there was no garden in bloom, where you mm. weren't walking red carpets, when you mm. weren't doing the sort of outward thing where someone can look at you and hear from you and make, you know, perhaps feel like you must have all, have it all figured out and you must have always been this way. Um, you know, with Instagram culture and social media culture, there is this image of perfection and it's a myopic, very one dimensional mm. lens. And so I'm here to sort of eradicate that and talk about the hard stuff, the messy parts, the, all of the, the nitty gritty, the caca of your journey. So talk a little bit about some of that to mm. get you here. And mm. what is it that kept you getting up? I think, um, the, the thing that probably kept me going is, I don't know, this kind of something within me, some kind of fighter, um, it's just something, the tenacity to just keep going. There's something in me that just, a little spark of self-belief. I wouldn't say that I grew up ever thinking or having lots of opportunities, like we weren't a really wealthy family or anything. Um, you know, there were there were times when, I think mean, my mum was trying to do the best she could. Well, my parents were, you know, they were really young when they had us. Like my mum was 16, I think. Wow. She was pregnant when she had my sister. Um, and so they were, they were just like a young family trying to survive and um they tried to give us as much as they could but you know we didn't come from wealth so I remember one um thing I must have hassled her and said I wanted to do ballet or something but I just had this memory of turning up to ballet class and all these like very um beautiful young little ballerinas I was probably only six or seven or something they had the lovely pink leotards on with the nice you know tulle tutu thing and the slippers and whatnot and I just remember turning up to this class in my navy blue swimming suit because I, we couldn't afford a, a a the the proper gear you know yeah. but it didn't matter in my mind to me in that moment until I could see the other little girls looking at me like uh, what are you doing here? Mm. And and it must have been so embarrassing for my mum, like mm. not being able to, you know, she was sitting there amongst all the other mums, probably like very uncomfortable. But I, I do remember one of the ballet teachers, she drew this big, my face on the blackboard with this big smile. And, she, and, and I think she was trying to just like help me. She was like, See, you just have to smile like Chelsea. Just keep going. Like, <laughs> stay about. I don't know. Like, I've made, you know, had instances in my life and um, not that there have been mistakes, but you, I think you get shown, you get put in situations where it's either fight or flight kind of thing. Mm. And, I mean, that may seem very lame. I, there's another um, incident when I tried to, like, join the school kind of, like, p- play or whatever you kind of, you know, end of year performance yeah. thing. And I had this role, it was like a musical, and so I had this role where I was um, singing in this production called Valley of the Voodons. I bet no one has ever heard of this <laughs> production. But I had this role where I, was, I had maybe like two solos and then I had like some other songs. And it was the first night and I'd invited, you know, my family and everyone. And and then I was so excited and then I get up on the stage and it's my turn to sing the first of my first solo numbers and the piano starts playing and I like crack into the song and I'm like ah, I can't remember what the song was but eh, whatever I'm singing singing and then like 20 seconds into it the piano stops and I look over at the piano teacher he's like Chelsea you're singing the wrong song I'm like, oh my god and so I was like okay and then he cranked up again and I just start again and then <laughs> 
the next day we have like this, you know, post, you know, first night kind of meeting of the show. And the drama teacher was so nice. She was like, okay, so everyone, you know, if you're having a bad night, just remember what Chelsea did. She sang the rock song last night. And then she just picked herself up and away she went. And by the way, we're going to use someone else tonight, Chelsea. <laughs> <laughs> but I think I've, I don't know, with um, those little things in life that have yeah. kind of informed my, okay, you stuffed up there, just keep going. Just keep going. Like, um, And then, you know, again, when I was got pregnant at 20 and I had a baby and that relationship turned to absolute rubbish and I was left with this three-month-old baby. Um, and really quite a distraught state because I just was like what am I going to do and I literally left the town I was living in which was in Auckland and I felt like I was so embarrassed I I mean for anyone who's ever kind of been in that situation where you've been cheated on or whatever I I think your first reaction is like oh my god I'm so embarrassed that this has happened and that everyone's talking about it or talking about me or um I'm a failure, I've got this baby, what was I thinking, thought I could make it, you know, do everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just felt so embarrassed in that moment. I literally ran away and I went to live in my small town that I grew up in with my dad because I just, I was so down and so depressed. And then I just needed a little bit of time to kind of come to terms with that Um it was tough because, you know, I ended up having to live on the benefit, which I'm not sure what the it's equivalent kind of like, is here. Yeah, the sort of government aid. Right. Yep. Yeah. Government aid kind of thing. You know, I had this tiny baby. Um, uh, because before that I was kind of working in an arts type of environment. So I had to leave all that. I'd always loved photography, but I'd kind of, you know. So I started just doing things. It took me a little while, but I think by the time he was like one and a half, I was like, I have, I can't just be this mum on the benefit. This is going to drive me mad. There's something gnawing inside of me to to tell tell stories or, or whatever. Like I was always enamoured by my grandmother, um, a Māori woman who had 11 kids and just like worked her whole life and just, you know, and the, and just the, the, the stories of colonisation that happened for her. Like mm-hmm. I've always been interested in that. So and fighting for the underdog. So then here I am at like with a baby, um, one and a half year old, and I just started to do things that maybe gave me a little bit of joy, like correspondence photography kind of classes. And then another solo mum friend of mine who happened to be like living close to me was like, hey, why don't we go to university? I'm thinking about it. I was like, yeah, I might. I was thinking about it too. Let's go together. So we we basically shift our lives to the middle of the North Island in New Zealand to this university, Waikato University, Two solo mums with three boys because she had two boys. I had one little boy. Yeah. (laughs) And so we were basically like, you know, raising eyebrows like, oh, who are these two like ladies living with these three kids by themselves kind of thing. But um, that to me showed like community. Like Mm -hmm. I needed the strength of another sister beside me who was in the same situation. She was trying to make a better life for herself. She had two little boys. I had one. And so it was really cool. But then – you know, not too far into that university stint. And and again, going back to university as an adult student, like I wasn't that old really, but yeah. you're in classes with kids who are like 17 and right. just out of high school and you're like, oh, you're feeling really old and you're, and you're dropping your kid at the daycare yeah. at university and then you're going <laughs> to these classes. And you've lived so much life at that point that it's like <laughs> yeah. you're not going to the party on a Friday no. and drinking, you know what I mean? Yeah. You're just like, no, I 
like I'm gonna watch a documentary like. uh, yeah for sure <laughs> you, yeah you're not at the student pub yeah and not long into that um I was trying to go back home because the university wasn't too far from mm-hmm. where my um iwi tribe sub tribe is from so I was going back and forth once a week to do te reo Māori classes which is language classes and I really wanted to do them at home, I felt like on the marae, that type of situation being amongst whānau, which is family, that that would be the ideal environment for me. Sometimes I think I make silly decisions. Not not that I'm saying that's a silly one, but I could have done Māori classes at university, but I chose to drive like you know <laughs> an hour um, out of my comfort zone or whatnot to to learn. Well, from. maybe that was you finding your independence, right? Yep, and I guess untethering from that. Yeah, and maybe a little bit to the authentic kind of cultural perspective. I wanted to be surrounded by family to learn. So, so my great flatmate, my other solo mum, would take care of my son Maya while while I would do that and take the drive over to home. But then one fateful night. Um, I just didn't see these roadworks that were on the road and it was a country road so there were no street lights or anything and I just hit loose gravel and the car just started spinning out of control and I thought I had a sense of where I was. I thought that the car was in a space where it was just kind of paddocks and I thought, Mm. okay, I don't want to do anything too drastic. I'll I'll just let the car kind of, you know, putter out as it runs out of steam. So – I wasn't in the paddock. <laughs> I went <laughs> slamming into a massive shelter belt of trees and just totaled the car, totaled everything. Like I was basically, I couldn't get out of the car. They had to cut, like the uh, fire department had to come and cut me out of the car because yeah. I was so wedged in. And yeah, basically smashed up um, my legs, my face, my everything. Actually at the hospital, my dad had to come and kind of – um they needed someone as a witness that was a family member because I was going to have to go into surgery and they couldn't sign anything until someone had come. And apparently when he turned up, he just he just fell to his knees because he could not even recognise me. I was that oh mashed to pieces. Yeah. How scary. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I like that you're laughing. Obviously you laugh about it now. I, I know. I love that Well, you have to, now. right? They say tragedy yeah. plus time equals comedy. Yes. So perfect timing. You can yeah. laugh, yes, you can only laugh about it. You're here. You're here. I so. am here. Yeah. And if I think about that as a universal, okay, what was that message? Was that like slow down, just stop trying to do everything all at once? Yeah. I think that's something that um, I need to and have have tried to um, implement into my life. Yeah. It's a hard one to do it's because really hard. if you're trying to get ahead anyway, you feel like you have to be doing a thousand things well I was going to ask how that idea has evolved for you and and if you're still able to honor that now that you're you know the Oscars are Sunday and you're about to whatever happens after Sunday it's like a whole new level of your career and like you said the doors that are going to open so there is this like the clock is ticking what are you going to do you're only as good as the thing you did Judge Rabbit was yesterday nobody cares like what's the next thing and I often struggle with that and I'm not anywhere near the the sort of level that you're at, but like just this, how do you be a person of presence in your life, find balance for other things that, that are a part of your identity that isn't just your producing or your storytelling identity, but still have the drive to be constantly working on things, to be constantly, you know, collaborating with others. Um, and it feels suffocating at times. Like you just cannot keep up and there's always a new thing. There's just, it's just overwhelming. And oftentimes it does feel like 
I just want to nap. Like, I just don't want to think about it or do any of it, you know, because it's too much. But that struggle of like, what is doing too much? And how do you find that that balance? You know, I think the thing too, that's scary that kind of comes swirling around all that is like, holy shit, am I just gonna drop the ball on everything? Yes. And then yes, I'm a fraud, you know, like oh that, my God. that kind of thing. Like, yes. uh, I can't do it all. Every day. Like, you know, or are these the right things to be even spending this amount of energy on? Yes. You know? Sometimes yes. it's unclear until later yeah and because so much of producing is putting your heart and soul into yeah. something and depending on how you've come into a project or I mean if it's yours or if someone's asked you to come on board there's so much goodwill involved and you're putting so much love and effort into something that might just fizzle out into absolutely nothing which is a real bummer and can be thankless yes incredibly thankless and I often wonder you know, okay, what's my lesson in producing? Why have I got this role? Is it because I need to think about what um, uh, being of service means more? Because it feels like very much in service. You are servicing the dreams and hopes of a writer-director. You're servicing um, literally people's kind of mortgages maybe even, you know, a crew kind of thing. They all rely on you to get paid. So all these people kind of rely on you. And so I've been thinking about that more and more um, why have I been producing for this amount of time when in actual fact I wasn't, it wasn't ever what I set out to do in the first place. Yeah, <laughs> you mentioned kind of falling into it. Yeah. And so I'm like, okay, I'm just trying to look now. I'm trying to be really cognizant of every lesson that's put in front of me. I'm trying to think every situation I'm in in life is mm. just a lesson. And what's the mirror? What is there that I haven't learned yeah. already? Why do I keep getting put, you know, put in this situation? What is it if things are making me upset or making me angry? What is it about myself? Am I reacting to that a certain way? Or is it something that someone's presenting to me that I need to work through? Because it's such a selfless task. Producing is so selfless. It's like parenting, to be honest. It really is mm. like... You don't, you get the joy from your children because they are just all encompassing love and they don't have any um, association to uh, need it. I mean, they need you to, to live and stuff like that, right? But they don't know anything <laughs> about you or, right. and they're, they're never going to give you. I'm not judging you. For, no. Yeah. And they're certainly never going to give you props that you want to hear at the end of the day. <laughs> like, Mom, you're so cool, man. You're amazing. You're you did this today and that today. Yeah. And you made me this and dinner. And that milk. Oh, that was bomb. Oh, yeah. Unreal. <laughs> and you took me to school. You dropped me off. Oh, my gosh. Like, you I know. can't believe it. Yeah. yeah. I just, wow. How do you do, you do it do all? so much? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so it very, it pretty much is like that. You kind of, you are mothering and parenting a project. Mm. So... I'm constantly, if things are getting me in situations where I'm a bit frustrated or um, I'm like having one of those days yeah. with the projects, I'm like, okay, why? What is it that I'm not getting out of it? And how is it that maybe I can give myself that satisfaction rather than expect someone on the team or give me the props I need, you mm. know? like. And in those moments, what do you do to, to shift that and pivot that? Um, you know, I'm, I'm honestly, to be honest, I'm only just really realizing yeah. that's what I need to do to keep myself sane and mm. keep myself going because um, in the past I would have just seen a lot of ungrateful little, you know, <laughs> and not seen the lesson in it. Thanks. 
um, I, I definitely would have seen it that way and I wouldn't have been as um, spiritually aware to look at the lesson in it. Now I just, I'm really trying to be present, which I think is why I named my company This Too Shall Pass because the bad's all the good, all the bad, all of it. It's all going to come and go in waves. So try not to hold on to anything. Mm. The same situation if I'm not having a... <laughs> snap in my fingers it's just it's just amazing yes, yes 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 and it's just a really good reminder because um like you mentioned before jojo rabbit in terms of baftas last sunday oscars this sunday this week is madness with all sorts of things coming and going but you're right like you're only as good as your last thing and that won't last forever so um you know make hay while the sun shines kind of thing but just be present to how you're feeling and how it's working for you. And also don't feel like you have to carry everybody else's weight on your shoulders too. Mm. There's only so much, you know, our shoulders are pretty tiny. Like, yeah. <laughs> and they're carrying our head for one thing. Yeah. <laughs> they're balancing that. Yeah. But so then to, to go back to this idea of like, juggling all of the things and the anxieties that come with that how have you navigated that because looking through you know what you've accomplished not just as a producer but as a writer director and as a storyteller you seem to have done a lot and that could just be perception because it's IMDb, perception. you know because imdb and <laughs> right, you're like right. well i don't know there's a million projects but you know like how have you navigated that like the anxieties that come with i think someone who is does have that fire like you seem to have there's the spark of that flame gets you going but sometimes it can also burn you a little bit you know where mm. you're like get burned by your own flame and kind of it trickles down and you have to like keep it back up so how do you keep that flame going and kind of shut down all of the noise and really get centered you know it, how have you managed that in the past 20 years 15 years since you started making I suppose and maybe it is 20 years now god how old am I Oh, yeah, it's probably 20 years since I kind of graduated uh, when I went back to uni and then worked. My first job was working at an all-female indigenous production company. Amazing. It was amazing. It was really amazing. And I'm so glad I got that opportunity because I had some really incredible mentors at that point, you know. Rhonda Kite and Libby Hakaraya kind of took a punt on me based on this kind of documentary I'd made for my end of year, like, you know, university studies. And it was a celebration of the young people that were taking over the um, duties at the marae back home where I'm from. And I wanted to celebrate them. And I kind of, there was a little bit of humor in there too. So I think, um, I know, I guess they took a chance on me and I'm really appreciative of that because I was able to walk into a working environment that was all women, which was unreal. Mm. And then Libby um, got pregnant, she was having a baby. So there was, we were a producer down, if you like. So I kind of just naturally went into this role of producing because we needed one and I never that's not what I ever thought I was going to do um but then I think maybe because I am a mom and I have those skills of kind of um managing different things at different times (laughs) yeah (laughs) um I kind of just did it and stayed with it probably you know I don't regret any of it but I probably could have stepped out of it maybe earlier but then if I did, maybe I wouldn't have done this. You never know, right? So, yeah, you kind of just have to go, okay, I chose that path. But um, in terms of how do I uh, navigate all that space, um, I don't know. You know, sometimes 
it, and I think you just have to be really honest with yourself. I can't talk for everyone, but for me, you know, sometimes I do go, holy hell, what am I doing? I've got so much going on and I want to map this into my future. How does that happen? And maybe the biggest lesson is um, feeling okay about saying no. So there's been a few uh, instances where people have come to me and asked me to be on board things and I've had to really think hard about it and think what does that mean for me personally um, and it's and it's nothing to do with them or the team or the particular project so to speak but if I in my mind think okay I've got these projects that I want to personally make because I know I'm going to get a lot of satisfaction out of writing and directing my own things that there's going to have to be a point where I, I can't keep producing as well as doing all that at the same time. I, I won't ever give up producing because it's it's a wonderful thing to do and you get to meet beautiful people and like these two Persian films I've kind of got at the moment, it's like, wow, I would never have even thought I'd be um, entertaining that idea had I not moved to LA because although we have a Persian community in New Zealand, it's really small. But um, I think you just have to try and think about what serves you as a as a person what what is going to bring you the most joy and satisfaction and also how does that impact your family because mm. I'm, I'm I made a bit of a switch actually on a personal level about my family because I think I was getting myself into such a um, crazy situation where I wasn't really spending much time with my children because I just had so much going on and tr- thinking I had to be all of these other things rather than, well, you know what? Home is where the heart is. The power center of who I am exists because I have a family and I have children that make me want to be a better person all the time if I'm not interacting with them or around them or seeing them and just enjoying their uh, growth and evolution as as human beings, then um, I'm not serving them at all or yeah. myself, you know. So that was really good when I decided I was like, just put your children first and then everything else will kind of fall into place. That's been a good thing that I've started to adopt. Yeah, and it seems like it served you well. <laughs> <laughs> and this too shall pass. No. <laughs> Tomorrow I might not feel like that about my kids. No, I'm just kidding. Well, you know, they say, uh, they say I don't have children, but they say the days are long, but the years are short. So true. And, and my mom always says she she could snap her finger and have us all be at the age where we were it was just chaos and a ruckus in the house. And I was yelling at my older brother for stealing my Barbies. Like just that chaos of childhood. She would have it in a heartbeat, you know, because she says it just goes by so quickly. It's really true. And you don't get those years back it actually Mm -hmm. is really true and you can learn so much about yourself like um you know I've often heard that children are just a reflection of who you are and no pressure yeah (laughs) right and also the the good and the bad the worst and the best bits of of you are all embedded in them and so they are like they're almost like the best gift or the best lessons you could ever have because they they are going to literally take you back into a time and space where perhaps you need to figure out those bigger lessons in life. And, you know, I since I made that decision, I was like, okay, I'm going to be really present for my kids. The joy that they bring me, it's so simple, but... Honestly, the joy that your children can bring you when you're just present with them and all they want is time. They don't care who you are, what you've done or right. what you've been up to. They're going to give a shit, like <laughs> whatever. Um, 
they don't they don't care about that at all unless other people are telling them something about you, you right know? yeah but they just want your time and they yeah. want your love which is simple isn't it like a human interaction anybody just wants time and just wants love yeah and just to be heard and if you can give that to your kids they don't care about all the other stuff yeah so what do you love about producing um I think I like the collaboration kind of mm. aspects of it. It's a really um cuz you know writing and writing can be super lonely. Mm. Cuz you're often it's just either your idea or you're just unless you're doing it in a partnership or something, but often you know you're in a room by yourself with your computer probably eating really bad snacks <laughs> and going to the fridge more than you should because you're like writer's yes, block. Yes, yes, yes. Um so I think it's the collaborative process of working with a bunch of really interesting creative people I like. And then there's all the different stages of it too. You know, the pre-production and trying to find and get other people interested in it, like like having to, to, to pitch your idea to other people who know nothing about it or have never even thought that there was a story to be told yeah. in this particular part of the world or whatever or why would I even be interested. Like seeing people's eyes light up when you're kind of talking about a story is really cool. That's yeah. quite neat. And then, yeah, just working with other really amazing creatives and getting to see how other people work. That's a really awesome thing to do too because it's all it all informs your own storytelling mm. too I think and not that you're pinching ideas from everyone but hey we all borrow stuff anyway yeah so it's just quite neat to be in um in the room with other creative genius brains and seeing it all kind of come together and it is the most collaborative um making a film is so collaborative mm -hmm. producing and then the you know the on on set stuff while you're happening it's so intense because you you got like a five-week shoot or something you've done all this build-up to that point and like every day matters every day every counts second, and yeah. you're so exhausted like every day you're just getting over and you make it to the end it's like wow you kind of all did that together and then the post is a whole nother beast it's like yeah. wow so there's like three major phases in this making a baby it's got there you go. It's like making a baby. I mean, yeah. it's like like being pregnant, like the three yes. trimesters. Yes, yes, yes. You know, until you then birth out we, this project. We've like. used the pregnancy metaphor often. Okay, on the podcast <laughs> where it's like. You know, I came up in physical production, so we often say that we joke that physical production is is like just nine months of labor for all of oh, production God. and then post is like you have the baby and you're like in love with the baby and then by the time the movie comes out it's like two three years later sometimes and now it's like a toddler and it's beautiful and it's out in the world and you have forgotten the trauma of childbirth and you're like maybe we should do this again you know oh, that was my, so fun that is so true i mean i'm three now three kids in. Oh, why did i not remember the first one was so traumatic because you forget i think it's Something biological. I don't really know the science behind it, but the kind of producing that you do, there's this umbrella of producing that's so broad and there's so much that can be done and titles and there's so much of it. So speak a little bit about the kinds of producing that you've done. And when we look at your credit on some of the projects that you've done, and I know it's, it varies, but particularly with Jojo Rabbit, like what kind of producing did you do on that project? Well, um, that's a long, like Jojo Rabbit was a long time in the making. In 2011, I was doing this course called Iave, and it's like a European producer's course. Mm -hmm. And it goes over an entire year and you meet up in Europe in three different uh, places. That sounds amazing. Yes, I um, do it that. was great. <laughs> <laughs> sounds incredible. The year I did it was the first time they had um, allowed non-Europeans mm. to be involved. So I was really lucky to kind of be part of that process. Um, 
And so you could either go with a project or not and you were in kind of small groups. So there was about 15 of us in each group and there were many other groups as well. But then you would, there'd be like maybe five or six projects and you just like dissect them and talk about them and it was a really, really great course. And then so by the end of the, the third workshop, um, everyone had an opportunity to participate in um, pitch meetings with industry professionals mm. from around Europe. And it was really useful because um, I had, you know, you could either participate as, as as a pitch or not, but I wanted to, so I wanted to bring Jojo Rabbit to the pitch. And I said, um, can you please put this in? This is the story I want to pitch to all these industry professionals, um, not thinking that uh, anyone would really take me too seriously. But it was a good opportunity just to check yeah. out the market, you know. And so here I was in t- 2011 and amongst all these Europeans and they had all these amazing dramas and these like really cool kind of stories and stuff. And um, I'm sitting in these pitch meetings going, hey, what about this Nazi comedy? (laughs) And they were actually really receptive. So it was quite cool because at that pitch session, like, so it's called IAVE, this European producer's course. It's really well known and it's got a really good reputation. So they do get really good industry professionals to come. And so at that particular pitch session, the people who ran uh, Rotterdam Cinemart Market mm-hmm. and then the Berlinale co-production market, they were there and they said, you should bring this project to both of our markets. And it was that year they were running like this express type thing where you could go to both because normally they're quite picky about being able to piggyback off each other. Yeah. So I'm really glad I did that. And um, then we basically applied to get into Cinemart and Berlinale and they picked it for both Um Uh, both markets which was great because we were then able to really get a sense of the European sensibility of the market like are people kind of like interested in this or is it a bit too far out Mm. like you know what are people going to think about it so from a producing perspective it was really that for me my genesis or beginnings of that being involved in that film was really at that early stage and then By the time we went to the cinema, we had like a really early, early draft and there was definitely no Taika playing Hitler <laughs> or anything like that. Yeah. It was, and I crack up now because we were at, the, at these meetings thinking we were going to get massive A-list people. Like it was, I mean, we probably sounded really ridiculous, but I think it's that thing to where you've just got to have this the boldness stupid yeah bold like oh yeah yeah we're gonna get like i don't even want to say i'm so embarrassed about the people we were pitching (laughs) we're gonna get such and such and such and such um but i think people really responded to the tone and um why we were trying to tell the story it was from such a unique perspective from the from the um perspective of a child is so disarming because you, it allows you to, to then open the doors for that kind of comedy and that quirky thing to happen. Whereas opposed to if you're going to make a straight drama, and we've all seen them, and there's plenty of World War II films that get yeah. made all the time. Um, it's like the genre that will just never die. <laughs> yeah, no, people, they're obsessed with it here in America. <laughs> they love a war. They love war movies. Like, it's like, all right, guys, calm down. Why let it go? <laughs> um, <laughs> but that's also reflective too, eh, yeah. of like the appetite or what, what executives are saying that they will mm-hmm. um, actually support. So um, that was – so from – yeah, in terms of a producing perspective, I was there in the beginning of, of yeah. all that kind of development Capital stuff. Capital producing essentially. 
Yeah, and then, and you know, and getting the rights secured from Christine Lunens, who had the book called Caging Skies. I mean, thanks to Taika's mum, who actually read the book first. She was the one who said, hey, this could be a good movie. Um, she's got a crazy sense <laughs> Taika's of Taika's mum slash development, exactly. Yeah, 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 totally. Um, but again, it had no humour in the book. The book yeah. was really dark. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, and then we, you know, the project kind of, it just simmered away. Um, and it wasn't that we didn't, uh, we weren't interested in carrying it on then, just other things happen. I really think about timing. Timing is always just, um, just be open to timing because I don't think the film would have been the same if we had tried to make it back then. Mm -hmm. Um, Essentially because, you know, his career grew as well with the time that was spent, that it was just kind of simmering away. I mean, it went on the blacklist. No one really wanted to kind of believe in it that much. we were toying with Studio Babelsberg in Germany for a while to be in partnership with us. We were thinking of even doing it in New Zealand. We were talking to Sir Peter Jackson and, okay, how can we do this just all at home? Just build it on stages. Yeah, what? Let's let's do this. Yeah. And things just have to run its natural course. Yeah. And that's the hardest thing about producing, especially when you're working with creators who are like, I'm ready to go. Come on, let's do this. It's like, dudes, there's so many moving parts on this chessboard that you have to kind of, or maybe it's more like a puzzle that you have to put in place because one thing triggers another. And that's the hard thing about managing projects as a producer. It's like you can't just – in an idea world, sure, here's $100 million and just go for it. And so many things that people don't realize within producing, right? Like the cast, you've got to get them, but then you've got to get the money and you've got to – is the script ready to go? Um, All these – timing or getting all these people in the right place at the right time and that's kind of what happened with Jojo because it really wasn't until Taika was able to do Shadows and Hunt for the Water People and Thor and like you could really see his um his humor and his tone so that you could go oh okay Jojo is going to have some of that but then Mm. also the success of Thor propelled him into a completely different Different space so he literally could approach all those right, actors that are in it now you know yeah like you probably he we wouldn't have had that caliber i don't think i mean we were trying to budget at the time like you said the natural <laughs> evolution of it patience resilience yeah. just pushing through um i'm getting the stare of having to wrap it up with you so if there's just any parting words of wisdom to young producers anybody who's listening to this who maybe is at a crossroads or is interested in somehow getting into the business from a producing perspective, like what Mm. advice would you have for that person? Um, I think for me now, like looking back on the things that I've chosen to do, I'm now really cognizant of the thing that made me want to do it in the first place. And that was telling stories of truth and from an authentic perspective. And I feel like now I'm going back to that. Mm. So if you kind of have a sense um, you know why you want to tell these stories. Try and hold on to that in your heart, and just keep that, keep that as your sense of um, your stepping point, or or whenever you're kind of feeling like oh, I'm not sure if I want to take on that role or this or whatever. Go back to that initial feeling. Why do you even want to tell stories in the first place? What is it that drives you? And if it resonates with that, then maybe that's a yes. And if not, be brave enough to say no. But it's it's all about being brave and just jumping in. So um, try and find projects that resonate with your heart. Mm, that's beautiful. 
Well, thank you so much for your time during Oscar week. I know it's madness. I'm very grateful for your time and for sharing this space with me and to sharing your story with the listeners. It's really, really special. Oh, thank thank you. you. And thank you for doing this podcast because I think it's really important. I was thrilled actually to know more about it. Um, The fact that you want to focus on the lows because I think sometimes we don't do that. So thank you for doing what you do. Thank you. Thank you for that. Okay. I'm going to play that back when I, when I need inspiration. <laughs> <laughs> and that's this week's episode. Thank you so much for tuning in week after week and doing this life thing with me. I see you. I recognize you. The hustle is real. Keep it up. And if you like the show, please spread the word. Tell a friend. Tag a friend. Follow me on social media. I'm at Carolina Gropa. The show's at Life with Kaka. Would love to hear what you think. Thanks again for doing this life thing with me, and I'll see you next week. Beijos.